everybody, and welcome to another episode of my JavaScript story. This week, we're talking to Maximiliano Fertman. I hope I got close on the pronunciation. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. No worries. Uh, do you want to just remind people who you are and uh, why you're famous? Uh, okay, sure. Well, I was on TV, but yeah, but I'm not famous for that. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah, I was. Yeah. Uh, I'm from Argentina, so I was on an Argentinian TV like 15 years ago talking about the internet and, and other stuff. Um, anyway, um, I'm a, let's, I, I want to say I'm a mobile web developer. So I've been doing mm -hmm. web development for 24 years now um, and mobile app development for around almost 20 so 19 years now. So before the Android, before iOS. Wow. Um, and I, I, yeah, I've, I've been doing all the platforms, basically, mm -hmm. from Nokia, Symbian, and of course now iOS and Android. Um, maybe lately, I'm more uh, well-known in the community for my, my work on web performance and, and PWAs, and progressive web apps. Right. So I've been doing teaching, speaking at conferences, and, and writing books on, on those topics. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, we had you on episode, let's see, it was episode 415 of JavaScript Jabber talking about progressive web apps, so. Yeah, I've got a lot of uh, great feedback on Twitter. Oh, good. About that episode, yeah. That always makes me happy. We have great listeners and they're always interested in, you know, things that make their apps better, so. So yeah, so this show, we kind of talk a little bit more about your journey in code and what you've learned and, you know, kind of things that other people can learn from your story and things like that. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I'm wondering as we get started, um, you know what, let's just start at the very beginning. How did you get into programming? So I think I've got into programming because I was uh, really young, around 11 years old. Well, young at the time, right? Now it's uh -huh. probably, you can get into coding younger. Uh, and I, I got my first PC. And I think I started coding because I have uh, someone in the family that was also uh, learning to code. And right. he, so basically he said, Try Turbo Pascal, uh -huh. and I started coding with that, uh, and I like it, of course. And I, I did some little games, and I remember doing. I'm not sure if you know what I'm saying, but um, I, I'm not sure if anyone remember Norton Commander. So uh, nope. it was a tool <laughs> to actually. In I'm talking about the '90s. Um, it was a tool that, uh, to actually. Uh, it was a file manager. Uh -huh. So I created a clone of that. That was like my biggest app at the time. So um, then I moved into doing some digital magazines, like uh -huh. uh, in diskettes. So I were basically creating magazines that uh, we were um, 
selling or distributing those magazines in diskettes. That would be pre-internet, uh -huh. right? Right. Um, then I did some, some apps in Clipper as well for commercial apps before the web. Mm -hmm. And then I moved into the web. Yeah, I don't know what Clipper is either. So <laughs> Okay. That's, uh, it's, it was like, uh, if you have ever heard about Visual Fox Pro, uh huh. So it's like his grandfather or something like that on the on the for 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 those. So not for Windows. Oh, so it I was for you. commercial apps. So I remember I was doing an app uh, an app for for a restaurant. So they were basically adding all the recipes there on the customers, something like that. Right. So database management um, and user interface, but right. pre pre Windows, pre pre web. Wow. That, that feels like forever ago. And yet, I mean, I remember that time periods, right? So maybe I'm just old. I've been around forever. Well, yeah. yeah. That that's actually means that we are old. But yeah, yeah. anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm also got that so cleared no up. We're old. I'm so, not even 40 yet, but. You're, you're just a baby. I turned 40 in December. So, <laughs> okay. um, so uh, how, did you, how did you get into the web then? Well, I think I was, uh, that was the last year of college and I was basically learning HTML because someone gave me a manual on HTML, like a book or something like that. So mm -hmm. uh, it was 1996. So uh, I'm talking about Argentina. The web was uh, coming to Argentina that year. So we didn't get the web from the initial years. Um, mm -hmm. I started doing the website of my college, basically. Mm -hmm. um, that was my first project. Then I did another website for, uh, for a friend. And then I started doing HTML, not JavaScript yet. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, I started doing this for, because there were not so many people doing websites at the time. Mm -hmm. So I started to get some um, clients from different companies that were saying, hey, you can get into, into the web. And, and then at one point, I had to move into JavaScript, mostly for, for form validation. I was thinking right. about what was my first JavaScript, probably form validation or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the area of, uh, of frame sets. So of course, be <laughs> before, before Flash. Yes. So before Flash, right? So, yep. so very long time ago. I, I remember that uh, we didn't have CSS at the time. So even, even CSS appear uh, after a while. Yep. Oh, uh, the good old days. Yeah, I got into web development in high school and was just playing around on GeoCities and things like that. Mm -hmm, yeah. And uh, yeah. So yeah, and frame sets and table layouts and, you know, and then we got fancy stuff like uh, prototype. <laughs> mm -hmm, yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that was a couple of years after that. That's probably 2002 or something like that. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a couple of years after that. So I remember yeah. the... The steps were, were first frame sets. Mm -hmm. So first, like plain HTML, like maybe with one image. And right. then uh, probably after that, it, we were going through frame sets, then table layout, um, and then, then Flash appeared at the time, started to like uh, replacing some things on JavaScript. Um, and yeah, now I'm and now today I'm with PWAs, React, or Angular, yeah. JS. So I'm still. Um, in the loop, but uh, yeah, it, it's been a while and different, different things um, that I've seen over, over the past 24 years. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, um, I mean, what, what's, what's kind of been your journey since, you know, the basics of uh, JavaScript and uh, frame sets and things like that? 
you know, you moved through what, like Bootstrap or jQuery? Or- uh, well, before that, no, I did Prototype. I remember my first mm-hmm. book uh, on, but I did a couple of books, uh, first in Spanish and then I moved into English, but my first books were on ASP.net. So I moved also to the server. Right. I did some server side, uh, classic ASP, then PHP. Um, then I started with, with Ajax, and for that I'm talking about 2005. Um, I did my first book on Ajax, and I was talking about there about prototype. But before right. that, um, yeah, it was um, basically plain JavaScript. There were not so many frameworks or libraries out there. I think prototype was the first one. And Scriptaculous. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to remember that name. Oh, yeah. Scriptaculous, yeah. So for fancy effects um, on the screen. Yep. So it was basically basically DOM management with JavaScript. Um, we were not doing a lot of apps, so it was just fancy effects over over documents. That was uh, what we were doing at the time. But then I moved into the mobile space. And because I was a web developer, and of course I love the web and JavaScript, I always tried to bring the web into the mobile space. So before PhoneGap, before iOS, I've been doing web apps for for Nokia, for Symbian. They they used to have platforms to create apps, let's say native apps, mm-hmm. like uh, web apps that were packaged in their own custom right. custom uh, system. And I was distributing some apps on, on their stores. So I've been doing uh, things like that before even PhoneGap appears as a way to to do something similar for iOS and Android. So my my journey basically involved a lot of uh, lot of technologies i even did uh, adobe flex before even being oh I think yeah i started with with macromedia flex then it was adobe flex and now it's apache flex kind of dead of course but uh, i did some apps there as well um and then i started to say emphasize in the mobile space so the mobile right. space was growing a lot at the time so i authored a book for riley programming the mobile web that was my first uh, book in english uh-huh. um yeah, well, we're talking about iPhone 2 or 3 yeah. at that time. So I was talking about the specific things that you need to do to create like mobile good experiences. Right. And moving to jQuery mobile. Um, I also authored a book on that topic. I started doing different trainings around the mm-hmm. world and, and also online trainings in different publishers. Um, yeah, I think that 10 years ago, I moved into the web performance space. I started to look into that so that's how i i got into different events like velocity and doing workshops on on web performance and trying to mm-hmm. to get deep in, in that space and yeah a couple of years ago pwas appeared and it was just the same thing i was doing like uh, 20 years ago for, right. for symbian and i say oh yeah that's i i know this stuff so then i started to analyze uh, pwas and and trying to focus on on research that um, are not simple to find out there, such as uh, PWAs on iOS right. and how that works. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too. I mean, a lot of the stuff it feels new because we're talking about PWAs, but a lot of the things in it, yeah, are not new. Yeah, <laughs> in fact, uh, there are a lot of things that are not new. I think that uh, we are going back to the same ideas, probably ideas that were dismissed at the time. And I've seen this a lot over, over time, right? So there are a lot of new ideas. You know, things like JSX, for example. Right. It was basically similar to 
E4X, that was Adobe Flex. Uh -huh. or, uh, it was just XML within, within JavaScript, or, or in, this case, in that case, ActionScript. But it has the same idea, also data binding. So, so I'm seeing a lot of these uh, things that we're doing now, and it feels like something new. Mm -hmm. But it's just another iteration of the same idea that we were using uh, a couple of years ago. Right. So when we're talking about the mobile web and then we're talking about PWAs, right, that feels like the web web now. So yeah. when, when you talk about the mobile web, I mean, how do you think about that and how do you differentiate it? Uh, well, that was always a big question. So if, if we have something as, as a mobile web, I always said that from a user's point of view, there is no mobile web, it's just a web and we, we right. know that. But uh, from a developer's point of view or a designer point of view, we do have something uh, different. And, and, and now it's more important than the desktop web, but always I, I, I felt that um, we always have been underestimating the mobile space. So mm -hmm. web designers and web developers were underestimating the mobile space. Let me give you some examples. But at the beginning when the iPhone appeared, uh, it was simple. We were creating an M dot website, like a separate yep. website, it was just a basic HTML uh, adjusted to 320 pixels width, and that's all. Right. Um, and of course, experience was really bad. So then responsive web design appeared, and then, yeah, the same website was uh, changing the CSS. The problem is that performance was really bad, so mm -hmm. we were actually harming mobile users. So it's always, we're always underestimating how important mobile is and the focus that we need to, right. to do there. And the same happens today. It's, uh, for example, it's uh, incredible that a lot of web designers or web developers are still, for example, today um, worried about IE, okay? So they tested their website in IE 11, but uh -huh. they don't understand that we do have Samsung internet browser that is probably four or five times more, they have more market share than IE, right. or, or even the Facebook mobile browser. Mm -hmm. So when, you, when you're browsing the web within Facebook, um, no one has ever tested their websites there. So again, and this is again part of this uh, underestimation. So we think that the, the mobile web is just the desktop web with a, with a smaller window, but um, that there are a lot of users that think that uh, Juji is uh, disappeared, but there are still users browsing the web in Juji and 3G all over the world. Uh -huh. um, and also with CPUs that are far away from, from my iPhone or my Android, and that's a problem. So yeah. that's why I still, I still want to talk about the mobile web because we need to actually make sure that users are having the, a good user experience. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Yeah, and I'm wondering a little bit on that front in particular. Um, I mean, what what got you interested in this in this particular aspect of development? Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, I always liked the mobile, uh, the mobile mobile phones, and having having the the world in your hands. So, so mm -hmm. even before the, the the mobile world appeared, I remember I remember going a train uh, probably in around 2001. Okay. And I was using ICQ. Okay. So ICQ. <laughs> ICQ. Yeah. <laughs> Good old days. And, yeah. I was using <laughs> a, a web version. So it was a web version of ICQ. Uh -huh. And now we're, no, no one actually understood what, 
what, what's the deal? So are you on the train? So like, what's that? So from, from that time, I, I like the idea of having, having your world in your hands. So that's why I always uh, like the mobile space. And because I was a web developer, so that was also something that, even, even if I'm also doing native apps, I'm also doing workshops and trainings on Kotlin and Swift. But right. um, I, still, I still like the web. I still like uh, the open platform. And, and, and I think that for a lot of uh, situations, it's still something, something good, even, even for the mobile space. So I, I, I don't know if I have, a, I have a reason why I like mobile space, but I always like that So, for, since the beginning. Right. So you've done Kotlin and Swift as well then? Yeah. When did you I, pick I those up? I know and Java. Yeah. <laughs> also Objective-C. Right. So, so how has that impacted your, your JavaScript journey and how has your JavaScript journey impacted those other areas of learning? So I always have the, the native path uh, running uh, aside my JavaScript uh, learning. So I'm also doing sometimes Angular with TypeScript. So also I'm, use, I'm using the latest version of uh, ECMAScript. So if, if you look at Kotlin and Swift uh, and, and the latest version of JavaScript or even TypeScript, I think they're all going, um, they're taking the same journey. They're pretty similar. Right. Uh, of course, with different, they have different natures, but um, the syntax and the design patterns are actually there. So it's actually not so complicated to move between those languages. Unfortunately, right. uh, let is not used the same on each language. So the let keyword, uh-huh. but despite that, and on Kotlin, uh, different, we use bal, let. So each language has its own keyword. They use bar for different, different purposes. But um, sometimes you say, hey, it's, uh, what a shame. Probably we, we should be using the same syntax and, and that's all. But I've also been playing a little bit with Kotlin to, to WebAssembly uh-huh. um, and see what we can do with that. I think there are a lot of uh, interesting things that can be done there. Right. That makes sense. So what, what are you working on now? So um, in terms of uh, platforms, I'm still like... Uh, trying to get deeper into the into BW waves uh-huh. because I, I feel there's a lack of documentation and, and information and, and research on that topic. So I'm working on a possible book on that. I'm working also on some new, uh, new video workshops, video trainings for, for different publishers on the PWA stuff. Um, then I'm working, I'm doing always consulting. I've always been a, uh, an independent consultant, so I'm doing consulting uh-huh. for companies. So that's, I'm, I'm, I've never been an employee, so I'm proud of that. Um, <laughs> and so I'm always doing consulting at different, different things for, for different companies. Uh, right. Web, I'm doing web performance uh, uh, work, like analyzing the web performance of an app or a website and, and helping them um, creating a better performance to, to increase conversion and, mm-hmm. and user experience. I'm working on that. that that's, I've been doing that for right now, probably eight years or something like that. But in terms of projects or, or, or of my own, I'm probably working on a PWA book that will be open source. So that's like my, my, main, my main project for, for this year. Right. That makes sense. So I, I'm curious as far as you know, you having this emphasis on mobile web development. Um, we've talked a little bit about that people ignore it and why people ignore it. So what, what's being done to fix the perception there so that people will actually build apps that work well? 
on mm -hmm. mobile apps. I think I, I, I didn't see a change yet on that, on that field. So I, I still think that we are underestimating mobile. If web developers, they're not using a lot the remote debugger, for example. Uh -huh. They're debugging their, their mobile apps on their desktop. And they're, they're measuring performance with, with uh, desktop tools. Yeah, right. maybe they are, they're using, I don't know, Lighthouse, and Lighthouse might simulate your CPU, but it's not the same. So I still see big companies, small companies, testing their mobile websites in their, in their office connection, in their mm -hmm. desktop. Yeah, with another window. But that's not really how how the real world looks like. So I still I still feel like um, there is a big problem there, and we need more real user metrics, and we actually need um, all the developers testing on on real devices, and not just your device. We actually need to get uh, different kind of devices based on your real users, mm -hmm. because I, I I feel like a lot of users don't actually understand that. Um, Developers and they, they don't actually understand that they are their users might not be on the latest Android or or, or iPhone. It depends on the case. It depends on the company of the project. Depends on the country they are targeting. So um, it depends. But um, most of the time, I don't think that now it's better than ten years ago. So I I still feel like the designers and developers are underestimating the mobile space most of the right. time. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm curious too. I mean, just uh, I pulled up my Google Analytics just because I'm curious how many people, you know, how many people actually are using different devices. So it has, you can look in Google Analytics and it'll tell you what devices mm -hmm. people are using. Yeah, exactly. Also, also there are a couple of reports that you can, you can check like uh, industry reports. One is, uh -huh. uh, it's called MOBR, MOBR. Uh, it's from Ciencia Mobile. They are the guys that uh, they were used to know for a library known as Verful. Uh, it's difficult to <laughs> pronounce that, Verful. That's a device library, server-side device library that it can detect uh, the library, the device that is actually coming to your website. And they have a free report that they release every quarter, I think, uh, where they, they have uh, stats about the market share per country, and like screen size per country, CPU, per, um, and then you know exactly how how the real world looks like. Yep, it's interesting too. I mean, I'm just looking at this, and it looks like about a third of my traffic on DevChat.tv comes on mobile devices. And uh, only a third? Well, typically it's uh, 55% in average today. 55% of users are typically coming from mobile, but it depends on on the project actually. Right, because if we are targeting developers, so they're currently using their desktop, so that's... Yeah, but it's still, I mean, even if it's, let's say it is 50%, right? Then, you know, then what, right? Then then we should be building it mobile first, and so... Uh, so, yeah, well, we have been talking about mobile for, for, for probably 10 years, 12 years, something uh -huh. like that, but this is still something that a lot of... Uh, users are not, uh, lots of developers are not uh, taking in consideration. I right. think that today um, it's more common to uh, hear the offline first thing. So uh, let's, um, let's expect that the user has uh, a bad connection or the user is offline um, and develop our app for, for that particular scenario. And um, yeah, from, from a design point of view, it's typically more... Uh, like a mobile, mobile, mobile first or mobile friendly because um, 
of course, the screen size is different and the way we are using the device uh, is, is different. Of course, where we are typically on uh, walking on the streets with sunlight uh, over the screen. So that's why design should be different. But um, one of the main issues is that we are not actually testing our websites in terms of performance, for example, on the real world okay, with a 3G connection, for example. We are typically testing everything, even if we are using a mobile phone, we are testing this with our device in our office. Um, yeah, that looks better than the real world, basically. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it's also interesting, uh, at least to me, for, I mean, looking at, you know, traffic over the last month, the other thing to consider is that it looks like, and I always assumed it was higher, but 27% uh, of our audiences are in the U.S., and then mm -hmm. the next largest country is India. And I don't mm -hmm. know what kind of internet connections they have in India, but you know, I always assume that people have, you know, a good internet connection and they're in a country that, um, where, where they can get, you know, something reliable. And yeah, I have no idea, right. That, okay, well, you know, some parts of India probably have much better connections than others, but yeah. How many of these people are coming in on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The first thing you will see is that, um, if you check stats in the U S you have 60% of users on iOS on mobile, we're talking about mobile. And in yeah. India, it's a 90% using Android. Yeah. So um, there is a big shift there. And of course, connections are, are different. It depends on the country, depends on, on the area. But hey, I've been in San Francisco last month. And, and sometimes my phone was my, my latest iPhone, iPhone 11 Pro phone was being downgraded to 3G in the middle of San Francisco. So yeah. um, it's not just, yeah, it's better in US, uh, but also in US, you have areas that were where connections uh, are not like uh, in, in the big cities or in the big areas. Yeah. Uh, I remember I've been doing also a training, a workshop in Tulsa, in Oklahoma, um, last year. And I think uh, I got uh, LTE only on some parts because I was like out of the city. And I was using 3G and sometimes 2G. Uh -huh. So for, for, for browsing the web on my mobile device. Yep. Yeah, I just realized too that I had the um, Adventures in Angular segment selected. But mm -hmm. still, I mean, um, yeah, 40% of my mobile traffic. So it's, it actually went down a little bit if I go across the entire website. But yeah, 40% of my traffic is on the Apple iPhone. 116, it says it's not even set. It doesn't even know what device it's on. And that's going to get more complicated now because... Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard that the user agent is going away. So that means that for Google Analytics, for example, it will become more complicated to actually know the device that is actually getting into your website. Yeah. So that yep. will become more complicated in a few months. Yeah, but the next device is a Huawei. Uh-huh. And then the iPad, and then it's Google Pixel 2, 3, 2XL, and then a bunch of Samsungs. And so, yeah, it's... It's, it's interesting to me just, yeah, how that goes. But yeah, I can see in other circumstances, you know, depending on the app and their user base. Yeah, think about Uber, for example. Yeah. They, have, they, they are serving users in, in, I don't know, 300, 400 cities yeah. in different countries, in, in more than 100 countries. So uh, context is different there. So it depends on what you're doing and, and, and your target. Um, but... Um, but it's something that we typically don't know. So we yeah. like, yeah, we have a mobile phone. We think our phone is looks like the other phones, and 
And there are a lot of information from, from the Chrome team where they're actually saying that there are a bunch of uh, good percentage of users with really bad CPUs. So in terms yep. of JavaScript execution, it's really bad. So bad that um, just a React hello world might take three or two, four seconds to actually oh, wow. execute. So um, we typically don't think about that. Yep. A few years ago at a JavaScript conference, I was approached by Nader Dabit. And you might know him for the React Native Radio podcast. He's also a developer evangelist for Amazon. And when he came to me, we had a conversation about React Native. And the thing that I love about React Native is that it's approachable, it's web technology, and it's cross-platform. And it makes a lot of things really easy for developers to jump in and do interesting things on mobile with JavaScript. So we've had this show now running for several years, React Native Radio, where we interview people about the React Native ecosystem, some of the things that are coming out in React and how they affect mobile, and other options that you have for mobile development. So if you're doing mobile development, you're doing it in JavaScript, you're looking for a good option, or maybe you're just trying to stay current with React Native, then go check out React Native Radio at reactnativeradio.com. So if people are looking for resources to learn more about this stuff, you know, and they don't want to wait for your book, what's out there? Uh, in terms of web performance, you say, for yeah. example? or uh, Well, I have a free book, so you can actually go and get my free book if you want. Uh, it's on my website. Um, but uh, in terms of web performance, there are so many good resources out there. I think that in terms of tooling, you can start with web page test. That is a free, mm -hmm. it's a free tool. That's the best tool out there. So uh, you can start with that and testing your the performance of your website. Um, and there are a lot of uh, video trainings, uh, books on, on web performance out there. Not just from from for myself. Right. A lot of good authors that are creating good content on those topics. Nice. We'll put a link to your book in the show notes. Yeah, I, I'm also a little curious as we're talking about this. Um, what's the development community like down there in Argentina? So we are so we are we are a big country. We are, I think, the eighth biggest country, but we are not uh -huh. so big in population. So uh, we are only 40, 42 millions, I think. So that means that community is. I mean, we have a good amount of uh, developers. And most of the big companies, we have three uh, billion companies that they are in NASDAQ. So mm -hmm. um, most of the big companies in Latin America are typically coming from, from Argentina. We have now a, uh, some kind of a local eBay mm -hmm. that is now it has more value than eBay itself. Oh, um, wow. their, their headquarters is, uh, is in Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. um, so um, all the good developers are there. So we have typically good amount of developers. And most of the developers are, are working for, for uh, they're working uh, for outsourcing. So they're working for US or Europe because uh, we are closer in terms of um, time zone compared when, uh, with India or Asia. Mm -hmm. um, that's why it's typically better for now. So we actually need for more developers. That's in most places. Right. But yeah, we actually need around 20,000 more developers. Oh, wow. Yeah, something like that. that they, they will be all higher if they're they actually working here. In fact, we have a lot of uh, developers coming from Venezuela right now. So they're traveling here mm -hmm. to work as, as software developers. That's cool. Um, is most of it centered around Buenos Aires or are there other? Yeah, we have a couple of uh, centers, but yeah, probably 80% happens in the capital city that's Buenos Aires. 
Gotcha. And do you have the sort of, because we have like boot camps and all kinds of stuff going on here to help people learn to code. Do you have that down there in Spanish or whatever? Uh, yeah, we have, we have boot camps and, and workshops to learn to code. Learn to code is typically sometimes not so simple. It depends on your background and where you're coming from. Uh, but uh, we do have, we also have a lot of um, programs from the government. That, right. So they're, they're paying that for people. So for people, it's actually free. Mm-hmm. They're not paying for those boot camps. But um, so we do have that. The program sometimes it's, um, it's a price that those boot camps can get. I mean, a boot camp here can get up to $3,000. That mm-hmm. is cheap from an OS point of view, but it's yeah. actually a lot expensive from an Argentinian point of view. Right. So, so that's probably the, the, the main uh, pain point right now on that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I've seen boot camps here that are twelve or sixteen. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, the the flip side of that is is that you know people come out of it, and if they you know if they play their cards right, they can get a you know sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar a year job. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sure. Cool. Well, anything else we should know about you, or that I didn't ask about? Well, I think you we, we cover most of what I'm doing. So mobile PWA. Uh, web and, and well, I, I've traveled to seventy-two different countries thanks to oh, web wow. development. Thanks to web development, so I'm, I'm actually happy about web development, right? So uh, mostly for conferences and, uh-huh. and doing doing workshops for companies. So right. that's not, so I'm a frequent traveler. Also, that's another thing we can add to the list. There you go. Now, do you have a family that you leave in Argentina when you go travel? Yeah, or? Exactly. Yeah. I have a family. I have two kids. No, yeah. so, but I'm still traveling. So I I, yeah. I I don't travel like a month or something like that, but then typically eight to 10 times out, uh, 10, yeah, eight to 10 times per year, I'm out of the country for a week or, or two weeks. Right. Yeah, last, last year I traveled a whole bunch. I actually got medallion status on Delta because I was okay, traveling cool. so much. Congrats. Yeah, I've been right. executive platinum. I'm an American airline, so I've uh-huh. been executive platinum for six years, and now I've, I've got the, the first million, million mile uh-huh. uh, status. So I've, I've actually won one million mile or something like that. I'm wow. Like gold status for, for, for life, something like that. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. I'm not sure I will continue to travel for 10 more years like this, but. Yeah. Yeah, it gets crazy, but yeah, it's it's fun to see new places and experience new people and and all that stuff. So yeah, yeah, that's cool. All right, good deal. Well, um, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Well, it's typically FIRT, F-I-R-T. I'm F-I-R-T on Twitter, and my website is firt.movi, M-O-B-I for mobile. <laughs> that mm-hmm. TLD that no one is using anymore. I'm still there. So F-I-R-T. Nice. All right, good deal. Um, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you have some things you want to shout about on the show? So I think that's something I want to share. It's something that uh, has to do with PWAs and something that a lot of uh, people are not actually aware of, that now you can actually uh, distribute your PWAs in the, in the Google Play Store. So there is a technology created by Google known as DWA, Trusted Web Activity. And mm-hmm. that's a way that you have as a web developer to create some kind of a PWA launcher that will actually, that then you can, you can distribute in the App Store. So I'm talking about the, the Android App Store, so the Google Play Store. 
I think that's uh, that's something interesting for every web app developer to actually see. So if you're doing React apps or Angular apps, you can also distribute your app in the App Store. And this is important. We are not going to package the app as with PhoneGap. It's just a shortcut that will uh -huh. open Chrome in a standalone mode, so in full screen mode, and it will run your web app with service workers and everything that you're, you're doing. So you don't need to actually um, create any native code, just the launcher. Right. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to do a quick pick. Um, so I've been listening to uh, a new book on Audible. And let me just pull it up here so I can give you the title. It is Generation Z Unfiltered by Tim Elmore. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. It's talking about people that are my children's age and a little bit older. And it's talking about, you know, the world that they're growing up in with technology the way it is and things like that, that mm -hmm. I didn't experience when I was their age. And so, you know, it, the way that it affects um, their social views and things like that so that I can kind of understand where they're coming from. And uh, I had a conversation about it with some friends of mine earlier today, um, you know, just kind of the first part of the book. And it was interesting because we got into a place where we were talking about equipping kids to deal with the world instead of, um, enabling kids in, you know, in, mm -hmm. you know, solving these problems for them. And so it was interesting just to think about, okay, so if this is the way that this generation is thinking about the world and these are the things that they're going to encounter as they grow up, then yeah, what tools do I need to give them in order to be able to deal with it? Right. So it's not sheltering them from technology. It's not, um, you know, when somebody is uh, bullying them online or, mm -hmm. Um, you know, when they encounter some hardship, you know, that may or may not have to do with technology or the internet at, at all, um, you know, how, how do I deal with it and how do I make them deal with it so that they can get the tools and the mental um, ideas behind, okay, when somebody bullies me online, you know, it may affect me emotionally, but when it, when it you know, at the end of the day, I have some way of coping with that, right? So, mm -hmm, sure. you know, whether I give it some extra context and realize that it may or may not be a big deal or, you know, things like that. And so instead of, yeah, hiding my kids from the internet or hiding the internet from my kids, it's okay, yeah, you know, you may get some metered access to it and I may put some restrictions on how you can access it, but you have to be on it so that you can learn to deal with it. And so it's been kind of interesting to think about that mm -hmm. and think about, you know, how many times my instinct is to jump in, you know, and make it safe yeah, yeah. or make it okay and realize I may be hurting them more than I'm helping them instead of sure. actually sitting down and saying, okay, this is what happened, right? Now, how do you, know, how do you deal with it? How do you handle it? How do you think about it? And also just giving them the freedom to go out and actually mess up where it's not going to have long-term effects. So. Sure. Anyway. Yeah, that's an interesting conversation. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, great, great book. I'm really enjoying that. So I'm going to shout out about that. All right, Maximiliano. Do people call you Maximiliano or Max? Yeah, or? in English, I can go by Max. In Spanish, I also can go by Maxi. Uh-huh. So it's Maxi, Max, or Maximiliano, a long one. Good deal. Yeah, my middle name is Max, and I have a nephew named oh, Max. Oh, cool. So yeah, it, it gets it gets more fun and confusing around here. But anyway, um, thanks for coming. This has been a really fun conversation. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. All right. Well, we'll uh, wrap up. We'll have another one next week. And in the meantime, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.